So like I say, we're into uh, the last of our studies and you'll remember last week we we sort of split the last two chapters up so that we looked at the practical side of, of Paul's finally, what he, he told us finally, and he gave us lots of practical advice for how Christians ought to live. But in the middle of that practical advice, he wandered off and spoke about the second coming, about the return of Christ. And so that's where we're in tonight. And so we finish our series in Thessalonians by thinking about the, the end of this world as we know it, the, the end of, of all, all time when Jesus will return. I want to do a, a brief, I don't want to linger on it, but I just want to do a brief review of, of where we've been in Thessalonians. And just very, very quickly, you'll, you'll remember that we set out to answer this question, what does a Christian look like? And we've learned, haven't we? I certainly personally have found this a very beneficial study. What does a Christian look like? We've gone some way to answering that question. One of the the primary things we've learned is that a Christian is someone whose life and whose beliefs are in step with one another. Remember, we, we saw in the first chapter that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians that they would have a faith that works that they would have a love that labours and they would have a hope that is patient. So this this combination of their doctrine, the things that they believe, matching with their lifestyle and the way they live their lives out. And then, of course, last week we we saw that really hit the ground and and Paul's primary thing that he was saying to us in that chapter 4, in the end of chapter 5, when he said that we should live quiet lives we should work with our hands, that we should mind our own business. And then that plays out within the body of Christ, in the church, that we live at peace with one another. And all of this is rooted and grounded in the cross of Christ. This is following the pattern of Christ in our lives. So throughout the the story of how Paul interacted with these people in, in Thessalonica, real people in a real time in history, Timothy's visit to them, we see that Christian people, what does a Christian look like? Well, a Christian is someone whose life is changed by the gospel. The things that we think and believe and the way that we live are changed by the gospel. But as we come to our passage tonight then, we have to realise that Christians, all people, don't live in this world forever. Not, well, at least not in the, wor- the world the way that we know it. So in the midst of all this practical advice about living life in this world, Paul takes some time to speak to the Thessalonians, not about living, but about dying. So let's turn to our passage this evening and we'll read God's word together. First Thessalonians and chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 13 in chapter 4 right through to verse 11 in chapter 5. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting reading at verse 13. This is God's word. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, 
lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the shout of God, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labour pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of verse 11. I think it's important that we think about the fact that the Bible doesn't only teach us how to live, it teaches us how we should think about dying. The Bible, it, we, we could easily miss that. We, we can be so uh, drawn to the application for our lives today in the here and now. And we don't want to think about death that lies ahead of us. But the Bible teaches us how we should think about, how we should face death. That old description of the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Well, in some ways, it's not a bad description. It's maybe a little bit trite, a little bit glib, but the book, the, the, the Bible, not only helps us with today, but it prepares us for the hundreds of thousands of tomorrows that lie ahead for us. It gives us an eternal perspective. And that's what the section we're looking at tonight is all about. How do we, as Christians, think about death? This passage, especially that uh, last half of chapter 4, is something I have read so many times. In funeral services, I've read it with families in the days after the death of a loved one. And when I read it, I really, I'm praying at the same time that I hope 
It's doing what Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 4. Comforting. Comfort one another, Paul says, with these words. That's my intention, is that those words are a comfort. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of this passage, I think it's important to say why this is, is a good thing for us to consider. And the truth is, we're all going to die someday. Let me say that again. We are all, everybody in this room, we're all going to die someday. That's a truth that most people don't face up to until a loved one dies. Or maybe until we reach a point where our own personal health has, has left the writing on the wall for us. I don't know if you remember, but one of the online children's addresses I did last summer was about the fact that we walk through a graveyard to come to church on a Sunday. Not every congregation does that. But shouldn't it act as a reminder to us? As we enter into the church building, into the meeting house, the, the bodies of the departed lie all around the building. I think that's a bit grim, but it points us to the fact that as we enter this building, what we are going to do is a matter of life and death. What we are doing in worship has everlasting significance. All around our church buildings are buried the bodies of people who used to worship in here. And one day, we'll not be in here. We'll be out there. People find it too easy to, to bury our heads in the sand, to pretend like death isn't going to happen to us. Even in, in the midst of, of a pandemic, a disease has, has touched every person across the whole world. But have people really stopped to consider our own mortality? we stop to think about that? I'm not sure we have. Maybe for, for half a minute during the, the first wave. Passed, oh, passed us over pretty quickly. Psalm 103 puts this truth, I think, bluntly and honestly, although very poetically for us. Psalm 103, verses, that should say 13 to 16. Psalm 103 verses 13 to 16 says, The Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do we remember that we are dust? As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Friends, it might be a bit grim, but isn't it one of the most loving things that anyone can say to another person? We hate to think about it. We hate to think about the pain and suffering that death causes. But to know that we're all going to die someday, that's a loving thing for us to say to somebody else. It's coming to all of us. Well, this passage in First Thessalonians 
is really, really helpful as we think through the reality of death. And not only think it through, but be able to face death with hope. Many of us here are, are scared of death. I know I am. Then I read the Bible and it fills me with hope. You might want to have your Bible open. I don't know if I said that already. You might want to have your Bible open at chapter 4. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. We've, we've remarked all along the way that we as Christians should live out what we believe. But here, Paul wants us to know it's not just about putting it into action. What we do believe is really important. There are specifics about what we believe. Those things are important. What we believe is immensely important, says Paul, for our comfort and for our hope. So theology, doctrine, catechism, these aren't just things for a special few in the church. They're not dry and dusty things that should be confined to, to books on the shelf in a library or in the minister's study. They are of real genuine benefit to us as we face up to the reality of the death that we see in our loved ones the death that we see in the world around us that that lies ahead for us all we need to inform ourselves we need to inform ourselves with what the bible teaches paul says to the thessalonians i do not want you to be ignorant now he's not trying to insult them he, this could be translated as uninformed he wants them to be knowledgeable. He wants them to be well-educated about those who have fallen asleep. Because the better informed we are, the more hope and comfort we will have as we face up to death. The word sleep that Paul uses here in, in chapter 4, that, that's his word quite often for someone who has died. Especially somebody who's died in Christ, a, a faithful Christian. And we're going to come to the idea of what Paul means about that in, in a minute. He, he uses the, the word translated here as sleep. Uh, that's the same word he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great passage about the resurrection. We shall not all, we shall all sleep, but uh, we shall all be changed. That, that great passage about the resurrection, that's the same word he uses, sleep. And he says you need to be taught about this. You need to be educated. And here's the truth that he wants us to know. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So those who have died will be raised with Christ. If you truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you should know that all who trust in him in this life will be resurrected with him. See, as, as Christians, we, we follow the pattern of Christ. Earlier in the letter, Paul showed that that would mean following Jesus into suffering. It, it means following Jesus by loving his bride, the church. It means following Jesus to death. But it also gloriously means following Jesus in the resurrection from the dead. And so knowing truth means we do not grieve or we do not sorrow 
the New King James says, as others who have no hope. Theology gives us hope. Let's spend a moment lingering in verse 13. Paul doesn't say, the dead will rise. Get over yourselves. The dead are going to rise. Don't grieve about it. He doesn't say, don't you believe in the resurrection? You know these people are going to rise. Don't worry about it. He says we do grieve. We do sorrow over death. But we do it in a different way from others who don't know the hope of the resurrection. This is a difficult balance to strike at times. And it's particularly hard to to talk about or to talk through with a family who have just lost a loved one. In the days between a death and a funeral, it's hard to talk about this. You've heard people say that a funeral should be a celebration of life. You've heard that. I've heard it many, many times. I have to tell you of an issue with that. At a funeral, we should mourn. We should grieve. It's not a celebration. Death is a horrible, horrible thing. What did Jesus do when he heard about the death of Lazarus? He didn't celebrate. He knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead in a matter of hours. And yet... When he heard about the death of his friend, Jesus wept. He wept over the death of a lost loved one. A funeral is a time for giving thanks for a life. Absolutely it is. But it's not a celebration. Death has no place in God's perfect creation. It's an unwelcome consequence of sin. Death is a result of sinfulness that Adam and Eve allowed into the world. It's not something to be celebrated. Death of a loved one is a horrible thing. To have somebody taken from us so that we can't hear their voice, we can't hold their hand. What a horrible, horrible thing death is. It's a reason for grief. So we should grieve. We weep. We mourn with Jesus over the death of our loved ones and and over the grim reality that death casts over this whole world. But, but, and this is where we get to the main thing I think Paul is teaching in this section, and the main thing I hope we leave with tonight, we don't grieve as the world does. They have no hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. Isn't it a comfort to hear those words? We will speak to our loved ones again. We will hold their hand. We will see them with our eyes. Because for the Christian, death is horrible, but it's not the end. We will be gathered together with them to meet the Lord in the air. There's a line that I often use at funerals. I I stole it from my former boss, uh, Michael Davidson, in in Railway Street. And I'm pretty sure that he got it from his boss when he was an assistant uh, to, to John Dixon. It's that for a Christian, death is not a full stop. Death is a comma. Death is not a full stop. 
Death is a comma. So look at verses 15 to 17 of chapter 4. And notice Paul's language, his tone as he writes. There is a certainty. He says things will happen and they shall happen. There's no hesitation. There's no maybe about it. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Friends, Jesus is coming back. And on that day, the bodies of those who sleep will be raised up from the grave. They will be reunited with their souls and they will meet the Lord in the air along with anyone who is alive upon Christ's return. I want to move to chapter 5, but before I do, let me just mention something. I don't think we talk very much about this in, in church. It's maybe something that doesn't come up very often, but it, it's what happens to the bodies and the souls of those who have died before the return of Christ. What happens there? The bodies are in the ground, but where does, where's the soul? I want to read a, a short section from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says it much better than I could. Um, that's tiny, tiny writing, folks. It should be on the handout as well. It says this, chapter 32. The bodies of men after death return to dust. The bodies return to dust. They see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. Isn't that good news? Souls of the righteous are made perfect in holiness and are received into the highest heavens and we behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So on that last day, the body shall be raised up from the graves and reunited with our souls. The bodies of the unjust, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonour. The bodies of the just, by his spirit, unto honour, and made conformable to his own glorious body. We don't talk about this very much in church. When a person dies, their body and soul separate. 
Not a pleasant thought, but when we realize that while our bodies lie in the grave, there is great comfort for us that on that day, just like the thief on the cross beside Jesus, on that day, our souls will go immediately to be with Christ. Our souls will be with Jesus in paradise. Souls cannot be destroyed. Souls come into being at conception and they live forever. Even the souls of those who do not trust in Christ, the unjust, will in a sense live forever. But the way the Bible describes their reality is not eternal life, but eternal death. Then as the confession teaches on the day when Christ returns from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, on that day, these bodies which have lain in the grave and and decayed, well, they'll be renewed. They'll be perfected. They'll be made like Christ's resurrection body. And they will be reunited with their souls. We will be reunited with our souls And we will live forever, forever and always with the Lord. So the eternal reality is not one where we live as souls floating about in the air. It's a physical reality. It's like the reality we live in now. Except it's been made totally and completely perfect by Christ. There will be walking and talking and hugging and eating with one another in the full presence and blessing of the Lord Jesus. What an amazing thought. I hope you find those words as I have intended them in the spirit of Paul at the end of chapter 4 to be words of comfort. As we move to chapter 5, we see that Chapter 4 was all about the hope we have because of Christ's return, but chapter 5 is about the way we should live today in light of Christ's return. And Paul's basic point is this. Jesus is coming back. We know that, but we don't know when. So you've got to be prepared. He's coming back. We don't know when, so we have to be prepared. I wasn't in the BB. I grew up in the Scouts. There's a family legacy thing for me, and I'm very proud of it. My father and my grandfather, all Scouts. And you'll know that the Scout motto is to be prepared. This passage makes me think about being at camp and not knowing when an inspection was going to take place. At any time, the leaders could come over and they would take the greatest pleasure, let me tell you, in finding the smallest error in the way that you had put up your tent the way that you had laid out your firewood. You certainly didn't want them to find any sweet wrappers or rubbish about the place. I've told you before, my personal uh, default is to keep rules and not to rebel against them. So I was constantly on the lookout, especially as patrol leader, just waiting to be inspected. Keeping the place neat and tidy, spick and span, in case there would be a surprise inspection. That's kind of what Paul's saying here in chapter 5. He's saying, look, I don't know when Jesus will come back, but he is coming, so be ready for it. I remember, you know, being a, a teenager when my, you know, my friends who were older than me had passed their driving test and they were coming to pick me up. I remember, you know, standing at the door, waiting for them to, to beat the horn and running out. 
standing ready to go with my coat in my hand. It's helpful for us to look at Paul's use of language here in chapter 5. Compared with chapter 4, we've already remarked on the certainty of chapter 4. His knowledge of the return of Christ, it will happen. But the question of when, well, that's a different matter. Something we don't know, it's like a thief in the night. No one goes to bed expecting that a thief will come. But you do go to bed with the doors locked, knowing that a thief might come. I'm not going to tell you the whole story of the day Joel was born. But let me just say, we weren't expecting it that day. And yet, Kate's hospital bag was packed and ready to go. Paul's description of us in the time as we wait for the return of Christ is people who know he is coming and so must be constantly ready for his return. That doesn't mean, like we said last week, that doesn't mean that we're just holding on tight and waiting for him to come back. We live lives, but we live godly and holy lives. And isn't it a motivation for us to live godly, holy lives that we know Christ is going to return? How do you want Christ to find you upon his return? Do you want him to find the firewood all over the place, soaking wet? Or laid neatly? under a tarpaulin. Paul says, get ready and stay ready. Be awake, be watchful, be sober. That's our state of mind as we wait. Don't drop your guard. Live in the light and walk in the day because that is who you are. That's who you are through Christ. That's what Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross. He has made us his people. He has made us the light. Why would we live as the darkness? Why would light try and live as darkness? We should remain living that way until he returns. And then look at verse 8. And we return back to where we started. Remember in chapter 1, way back in chapter 1, what Paul prays for the Thessalonians in verse 3 of chapter 1, faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. These are the things we believe belong to us. These are ours because of the death of Christ. These are the benefits, the blessings that come to us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. These are things that mark out the life of a Christian as we put them into action. As we lived Christ-shaped lives in this troubled and difficult world. As we wait for the sure and certain return of Jesus. We put on the breastplate. We put on the helmet. Remember that Jesus died to make us his. And that when we trust him, we can be sure that we will live together with him for all time. On this side of death and on the other side of death. In this part of the sentence and after the comma in the same sentence. Living with Christ in our bodies, 
and our souls forever. Let's pray together.